want you to ask the Lord while you're standing there to prepare your heart for what he wants to do in these, in these next few moments. Just welcome him to come into your heart and to come into your life. Holy Spirit, prepare us in these next few moments for what you want to speak to us and what you want to say to us tonight. God, I, I feel an unusual, an unusual moving of your presence tonight in this place. I believe that you're here tonight, God, to speak to us, to help us, to heal us, to encourage us. God, do your work tonight, I pray, in the name of Jesus. While you're standing, will you reach for your Bibles, please? If you're not standing, I want to invite you to stand with me, please, real quickly all over the building. Appreciate Pastor Tony and this worship team. Book of Romans, chapter 8, if you don't mind to go there tonight, either in a Bible or an electronic device, whatever you have with the Scripture, or you can follow along behind me. My intention was to start this uh, and preach this this morning, but the Lord just moved in on us, and we just the Lord ministered to us this morning in such a wonderful way. If you were here, you understand what I'm talking about. His presence was just good to us today. It wasn't one of those... Pentecostal aisle running, kind of swing from the chandelier, shouting. But it was just a sweet presence of the Holy Spirit that graced this place and ministered to us. I'm glad that He's. you can find God in a shout. You can find God in a moment of solitude. You can find God in a moment of silence. But I'm just glad that God is God and He shows up when we need Him. Amen? Amen. So I would be grateful tonight if you'd help me preach a little bit. I know it's Sunday night, but just... Let's just have a little time together, and I really, my, my goal is to be brief, but sometimes I don't meet my goal, but I'm going to do my best tonight. Romans 8, 28, I'm going to take the next uh, few weeks, I don't typically start series on Sunday nights, but I didn't get to start it today, and I'm just going to take the next, I don't know, two or three weeks and preach right from this one verse about the power of purpose. And uh, let me read this to you, it's well-worn, many of you know it, and here's what it says, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God to those who are the called according to his purpose uh, would you mind to read that with me tonight it's on the screen right here behind me let's just read it together here we go and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God to those who are the called according to his purpose I want to take a few minutes tonight as the Holy Spirit enables me and helps me, and I need His help tonight. I want to use for a title tonight, Finding Purpose in the Pain. Finding Purpose in the Pain. Father, thank You for Your Word tonight. Thank You for the power of the Holy Spirit tonight. Thank You for what You're going to do tonight in this place. And I just pray You'll give us ears to hear, hearts to receive, eyes to see. When we gather in these altars in the next few moments, God, I want you to do a work, God, a deep work in the hearts of people, Lord, a work that man can't do, that we can't do, but only your presence can do, God. And I thank you for it in advance. And the church said amen. God bless you. You can be seated tonight. Thank you, Pastor Tony. The book of Romans is, in my opinion, quite possibly the most powerful, the most profound, uh, 
complex theological writings of the Apostle Paul. Doesn't take you long when you open up the pages of the book of Romans to see the, the depth of Paul's thinking and the depth of insight that he had and the schooling that he had and the education that he had, how well versed that he was in the scripture. Romans is quite possibly the flagship of the fleet of the Pauline letters. I could take many moments tonight and take you through all 16 chapters of this great book, but there's one chapter and there's really one verse tonight that I just want to draw our attention to, and it's that 28th verse. One author said that Romans 8 and 28 is the Rosetta Stone of Scripture. It is the the bedrock, the cornerstone of all of Scripture. You see, with Without Romans 8.28, life just doesn't make sense. But with it, we are able to make sense and able to grasp a little more of life's experiences. When you look at the 28th verse and you hear the Apostle Paul say, all things work together for good, we understand that all means that. It means all. So when all things work together for good, we we realize that Paul was saying that good, bad, painful, times of struggle, times of trials, times of tests, all of those things work together for our good. So the question is, if all things do indeed work together for good, how how could a loving God allow pain and heartache and difficulties and trials and struggles in our lives? I mean, if He has this incredible plan for our lives, And if he indeed indeed did create us out of the very dust of the earth, and I believe that he did, and he breathed his breath into our nostrils, we became a living being. If we are formed and fashioned and created and made in the image of God, according to Genesis 1 and 26, made in his likeness, Brother Turpin, why is it that We as humans have to experience difficult things and walk through difficult places and endure painful situations. I believe that the simple answer to that is found in the book of Genesis when Adam and Eve opened the door for sin. And when they ate of that fruit and sin entered the human race and the curse of sin that came along with that, it opened the door for pain in people's lives. It was God who said in Genesis 3 and 16 to Eve that in in childbearing there indeed would be pain. And pain is a common theme and a thread that is woven throughout the pages of Scripture. You hear the psalmist David in Psalm 23 and 4 
when he says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. We hear the words of Jesus himself in John 16 and 33 when he says that in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. We hear it in the words of the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 4 and 12 when he says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. It's going to try you. There's going to be some fiery trials. But rejoice in as much as you are partakers of the suffering of Christ. And when his glory is revealed, you may be glad with exceeding joy. And then we hear the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 8 and 9 say, We are hard-pressed on every side, yet we're not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. Always carrying about in our body the dying of the Lord Jesus. Those are just a few examples of that theme of pain and struggle and difficulty and trial that weaves its way through the pages of the Word of God. My mind goes back to what theologians and commentators and historians believe is the oldest book in the entire Bible. It is the book of Job. The Bible, if you understand, when you read it, it is not written chronologically. And Job, they tell us, fell somewhere between the life of Abraham and the Tower of Babel being built, or the Tower of Babel and the life of Abraham. Somewhere in between, that's when the book of Job and the events in Job's life actually transpired. And his life has been well chronicled. And we've preached about him and talked about him and taught about him. And we understand that for, for 37 chapters, in, in, in just a moment of time, Job went bankrupt and lost every material possession that he had. In a moment of time, he stood at the, on the top or beside 10 freshly dug graves when all ten of his children were killed in a tragic accident. In a, in a moment of time, we see that Job lost his health and had these painful boils that showed up on his body from the top of his head to the soles of his feet. In a moment of time, we can hear his grief-stricken wife. I mean, who wouldn't be like this if you buried ten children? Look at him and say, this is what serving God has got us. Why don't you curse God and die? And then Job's comforters, supposedly comforters, show up. And when they get there for seven days, they sit in silence and they stare at him. And then when they open their mouths and they start talking, they start blaming Job and questioning Job. And certainly there must be some kind of sin in your life, Job. But the Bible tells us that Job was upright. He feared God. He shunned evil. He was one of the most righteous people in all of the land. And for 37 chapters, God is silent and says nothing. But in the 38th chapter... God finally speaks for the first time to Job. And Job 38 and 1 says, Then the Lord answered Job. You see, sometimes there are those suddenly moments in our lives when God just shows up. But sometimes there are long extended periods of silence. And it's those then moments when God has been so quiet. But when he speaks, he has something to say. God, I feel the Holy Ghost in here tonight. I want to preach a little bit. 
But in the 42nd chapter, it's not really what God said that struck me, but it's what Job said to God. In the latter part of, of, of Job, in chapter 42 and verse 5, Job says, but I, I have heard you, heard of you with my ear. He said, but now my eye has seen you. And that says something to me. Job says, God, I've, I've heard about you, but now something has changed. Now I've, I've seen you. I have experienced you. See, it's one thing to hear about how good God is and about how great God is and about how faithful God is, but it's something completely different when you see him and you experience him for who he is. And Job was saying, in the midst of my pain, in the midst of my suffering, in the midst of my struggle, I haven't just heard about God, but these eyes have seen God and how great and how wonderful and how amazing he is. Is. I read some time ago about the life of quite possibly the most beloved hymn writer of all times, a lady by the name of Fanny J. Crosby. When I was a boy, we had these what they call redback hymnals that were in the back of the pew. You remember those days? On the front, it said church hymnal. Our publishing house in Cleveland, Tennessee, produced and published those books. We sang out of those books for years. And even now, we have jazzed up some of those hymns. I remember as a boy, we'd turn to page 110, and we'd sing Heaven's Jubilee. We'd turn to page 333, we'd sing, I'll Fly Away. We'd turn to page 10 and sing, There's Going to Be a Meeting in the Air. We'd per turn to page 235, and we'd sing, he set me free. And we would go through those great songs and sing those. And many of those hymns in that book were penned by Fanny J. Crosby. She wrote songs like Blessed Assurance. I am thine, O Lord, saved by grace. To God be the glory. Tell me the story of Jesus, safe in the arms of Jesus. I could go on and on listing titles that she wrote. Fanny J. Crosby was born in 1820 in a one-story cottage. And tragedy and trial and difficulty would be a common theme in her life. Didn't take long for tragedy to strike when at the age of one she lost her father. She would never know her dad. At the age of six weeks, she caught this cold in her eyes, this virus in her eyes. And because the, the normal family doctor was out of town, another doctor was sent in to tend to her. And he prescribed this hot mustard poultice to be applied to her eyes. It completely destroyed her sight. Later on, the family would find out that he was never even licensed to practice medicine. But by that time, it was too late to prosecute because he had fled town and was never heard from again. But here's what Fanny J. Crosby said when she was asked about that doctor. She said, I never had any resentment toward him. She said, I believe that the Lord permitted that so I could fulfill his plan for my life. God, I feel the Lord in here tonight. I'm going to attempt to get through all this, and I might not. That will be good for you and maybe good for me too. At the age of five years old, her mother took her to the best eye care specialist in the country. 
only to have him look at them and say, I'm sorry, she will never, ever see again. At the age of eight, she wrote her first recorded poetry. And here's what she said. Oh, eight years old now. Oh, what a happy soul I am. Although I cannot see, I'm resolved that in this world contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that others don't. To weep inside because I'm blind, I cannot and I won't. 1858, at the age of 37, Fanny J. Crosby was finally married. Her and her husband had one child, but they would lose that child as a baby to death. They say that it's possible that after the death of that child, that is what, that's what caused her to pin that now famous hymn, Safe in the Arms of Jesus. And countless numbers of grieving parents have been comforted by those words. When Fanny J. Crosby looked back on her life, she kind of summed things up. She, she talked again about that physician. And she said, I, I do believe that it was a blunder on the physician's part. She said, but I don't believe it was a mistake on God's part. She said, I, and this is her, I quote her now, I verily believe, she said, that God intended for me to live my life in physical darkness so I would be better prepared to sing his praises and incite others to do so too. She said, if I had not been stricken with this blindness, she said, I never would have written thousands of hymns that I wrote. Here's the point. Fanny J. Crosby found purpose in the pain that she had gone through and that she had had to deal with. So here's the question tonight. What is the purpose of pain in our lives? What is the purpose of difficulties? What is the purpose of struggle? What is the purpose of trial? What is the purpose of what feels like missed opportunities and closed doors and dreams and desires of your hearts that never seem to be fulfilled? What's the purpose? I believe that the purpose in our pain is so God's purpose can be fulfilled in our lives. One man said this, that the gems, G-E-M-S, can't be polished without friction. And that a man can't be perfected without trials. It was the great A.W. Tozer who said, It is doubtful that God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. So permit me for just a few moments tonight to give you just a few things about this concept of purpose and pain. What, what is the purpose of pain? Number one, I believe that pain in our lives positions us in a place of trust. Because if there is ever a time that we have to trust God, if there's ever a time that we have to throw ourselves upon the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is in those moments of pain when life just doesn't seem to make sense to us. I go back to the book of Job. And I can hear this man in Job 13 and 15, and here's what he said. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. 
There is no doubt in my mind that Job felt Brother Kenny Hancock, like he had died a thousand deaths. To lose every penny that he had, to lose all ten of his children at one time, to lose his health and then have his wife tell him to curse God and die. But to be able to look in the face of pain, to look in the face of loss, to look in the face of struggle and trial and difficulty and say, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. I can hear the word of the writer of Proverbs say trust in the Lord with all of thine heart lean not to thine own understanding but in all of thy ways acknowledge him and he will direct thy path here's the thing if we ever try to figure it all out and we ever try to make sense of it and we lean to our own understanding and our own comprehension nothing will ever make sense to us but when we throw ourselves on the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ and say, I don't have answers to these questions. I don't understand everything. And though you might slay me, I've made up my mind that I am going to trust you. I'm telling you the pain will put you in a place that says, God, please have mercy upon my soul. I need your grace like I've never needed you before. Somebody once said that God uses the disappointments and He uses the disillusionments and He uses the failure of our lives to take the trust off of ourselves and to place it upon Him. Martin Luther King Jr. who said that the true measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience. But it's where he stands in times of chaos and in times of confusion and in times of crisis. That is where the true measure of a man is seen, where he stands during those moments of challenge and controversy. I'm telling you, we'll never know. We'll never know the grace and the mercy of God till we get to a place that we need the grace and mercy of God. We'll never know God to be Jehovah Jireh till we get to a place that we need God to provide for us. We'll never know God to be Jehovah Rapha, the Lord, our healer, till we get to a place that we need Him to heal us. We'll never know Him to be Jehovah Raha, the Lord, our shepherd, until we get to a place that He has to lead us and guide us. We'll never know Him as Jehovah Shammah, the God who is ever-present, until we get to a place that He has to be with us and even though we walk through a valley of a shadow of death we know that God is with us and when I walk through the waters the water the floods will not overtake me through the fire I will not be burned and the flame will not be kindled upon me we don't know God until we get to a place that we need God like we've never needed God before hallelujah number two It not only positions us in a place of trust, but it prepares us to be given. I was reading this week again as I worked my way through some devotional time, and my quiet time took me to the Garden of Gethsemane. I was reading there about Jesus as he was just hours away from the most horrible, horrific experience called the cross that any man would ever have to go through. He goes into the garden that night, and the Bible tells us that his soul was in great anguish, Aunt B. 
He was struggling. He was wrestling. He was grappling with the will of God that laid before him. And he knew. He knew what was awaiting him. And the divine part of him was ready to embrace the cross. But the human part of him said, God, I don't want to drink from this bitter cup that you've laid before me. See, it's, when you look in the pages of the Word of God, it's wonderful. We see the divinity of Christ, but then we also see the humanity of Christ. The human part of Him wanted nothing to do with Calvary. And who could blame Him? Who would want to endure what He went through? And the Bible said that in that garden, as He struggled and He wrestled and His soul was in such anguish, God, I, I don't want to do this, and if possible, would you please let this cup pass from me? But, but nevertheless, not, not what I want, God, but, but what you want for me. And the Bible said that he was in such, such anguish of soul and so stressed that as he, as he prayed and he was sweating, he was in such intense prayer and such stress of soul and spirit and body that which should have been sweat, came out as great drops of blood. The capillaries in his head had busted. And what would normally be perspiration like we have, it became, as the Bible said, notice it said great drops of blood. I don't know of any of us in here that have prayed to such a point that we've sweated blood or cried tears of blood. Maybe you have, I don't know. And from there we know that he would endure Calvary, but that word Gethsemane, many of you probably know this, in the Aramaic, it means olive press. And it was very common in that day in those olive tree orchards for them to take those harvested olives that would fall off of the trees when they got big enough and ripe enough and place them into this very large press. And take this large stone, this rock, and push it down on top of those olives. And they would literally pulverize and crush and squeeze those olives. Here's why they would do that. Because they wanted to get the valuable oil and the juice that was in those olives. And here's what they understood. That the only way to extract the oil, the, the juice from those olives that would make the oil, the only way to get that oil out of there was to press and to crush and to squeeze. It would not be effective unless it went through the place of the press. It could not be utilized properly unless it had been squeezed. It couldn't be used like it needed to be had it not been crushed and squeezed and pressed. It reminds me of that lady in Mark 14, Matthew 26, John chapter 12, Luke chapter 7, where she came into Jesus and she took that alabaster box of oil or scented perfume, and she was going to prepare the, the body of Jesus for burial. If you read the accounts, we understand, and we see now some commentators and theologians will tell you that the lady in Luke 7 was different from the lady in Matthew, Mark, and John. I'm not here to debate that or talk about that, but here's the point. The, the, the anointing could not happen. And that oil, that perfume, that alabaster box was useless until it was broken open. 
And once it was broken, then she could pour it on the head. Some gospel writers say that she poured it on the feet of Jesus. But either way, it could not be utilized until it had been broken. Here's the point. God can't really use us until we've been through some painful places in our lives. God can't really use us until we have been to a place that we've been broken. I, I had an emergency moment tonight. I, I've used this before, and I, I thought about the little boy in the five loaves, remembering the two fishes. When he came to, to that, that, that Judean hillside that day, and Jesus had been teaching and preaching, and the hour was growing late, and I've used this illustration here before, but just humor me and permit me for a moment to use it again. And the disciples came to Jesus, so the hour's growing late. You've been teaching all day. We must send the people away. They've got to find something to eat. Nightfall is coming. They've got to get out of here because they've got to eat before they get home. They can't make the long journey. They'll faint by the wayside. You know, the highway robbers and thieves that are out there, we, we've got to do something. Send them away. Hurry, Lord. They've got to get to the village and the markets and the places and get something to eat. And Jesus said, we don't need to send them away. You give them something to eat. They said, we don't have anything here. It's a deserted place. The hour's late. We don't have anything. Go see what you have. And they come back and they say, listen, we, we found a lad. We found a boy. And he's got five loaves. And he's got two fish. But what are they amongst the crowd of so many? And Jesus said, bring them here to me. I, 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 I just Tonight I wanted to do this and I, I, I just went to the kitchen. I mean, after I got done changing for baptizing, I found a, several packs of hamburger buns. I don't know whose they are, what they're for, but I owe you a pack. I was desperate. I thought I was looking for some rolls we had used the other week at the dinner. I couldn't find those, so I found a bunch of hamburger buns. If I'd have thought, I'd have brought a loaf of bread, but I just, I didn't think. So he's got five loaves. Five loaves, two fish. You've heard the story. You know what I've talked about this before. They, they weren't loaves of bread, probably even big like this. They were smaller. They say the fish were maybe were like sardines, and the loaves of bread were like maybe little crackers. I don't know. The crowd of 5,000 was just the men, not including women and children, Fifteen to 20,000 people there that day. So the disciples came back and said, we've got five loaves and two fishes. Two fish, get, that's all we can find. He said, bring them here to me. And the Bible said something. It said that he, he took the loaves. Those loaves were given away four times that day. The little boy gave them to the disciples once. The disciples gave them to Jesus. That's twice. Jesus gave them back to the disciples, that's three times, and they distributed it to the hungry crowd, that's four times. But nothing can be given till it's been broken. Nothing can be given until it's broken. Listen, those loaves as a whole were useless. But when they passed through the hands of Jesus, they became priceless. Woo, that wasn't even in my notes. Hallelujah. That's tweetable or Facebook worthy right there. Those loaves as a whole were useless, but broken, they became priceless. 
I'm telling you, there's something about brokenness and there's something about us going through a place of a crushing and a squeezing and a pressing that makes us so much more useful in the hands of the master. And you have to understand something that just like those loaves passed through the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ before they were broken, they were placed in his hands. I want you to hear me that nothing will ever touch you that is not first passed through the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. That means he's got you past, present, future in the palm of his hand. And if you're in a place right now of pain, you find yourself in a place of brokenness. I'm telling you, God is just setting you up because he wants to use you for his honor and for his glory. Listen, it's not just about down here, but life has eternal purpose. It's about us submitting ourselves to God, placing ourselves in his hands and saying, God, I submit to the process wherever you're taking me and whatever you're taking me through, God, I submit to that because I understand you're preparing to give me away to somebody else so that you'll get the glory and you'll get the honor and you'll get the praise. Broke them. Hungry multitude was fed. 20,000 people, 12 baskets gathered up that remained over and above them that had eaten. The Bible says they ate until they were full. What's the key, though? It's the brokenness. See, there's a divine order that God takes us through in our lives. He'll bless you first. Because he knows you can't handle the breaking until he blesses you. He'll bless you. Here's why he blesses you, because he knows he has to break you. And then after he breaks you, because he's already blessed you, you can then handle the breaking. Once you've been broken, you can then be given. And you can be used. And I don't know why that we have to walk through what we walk through. And I scan this crowd tonight, and in the short 17 months. Have we been here 17 months? 17 months? Time flies when we're having fun, doesn't it? Some of you are going, it's been 17 months too long. I'm sorry. And I could scan this crowd tonight, and I know some of your stories. I know there's been pain in your life. I, I don't know why that we have to bury children before we do parents. I don't know why that people have to deal with miscarriages and stillborn infants. I don't know why that we have to watch our loved ones walk through terminal illness and pain. I don't, I don't know why. But I know there's purpose in it. Because I believe that the purpose that God has for us is for us to in turn be able to comfort those who need to be comforted. And maybe, maybe he's been breaking some of you because he wants to give you away to somebody else. Maybe, maybe he's put you through some places of pain and difficulty and struggle and agony because he knows there's people that need what you have. Listen, the Bible says we have, there's a treasure we have in this earthen vessel. There's a treasure we have. I believe we can tap into that treasure until we've been broken. 
Just like those olives can't be utilized and the oil can't be made until they've been pressed and crushed and squeezed. And some of you feel like you're in your own personal Gethsemane. And you feel the anguish and you feel the struggle and you feel the pain and you're so conflicted and you say, God, I don't know why I've got to walk through this, but nevertheless, whatever you want, God. Pain prepares us to be given. Pain positions us in a place of trust. And here's the last thing I want to tell you. If you're not careful, pain will pollute your perspective. Come play softly for me right now. I just want you to come. Pain will pollute your perspective about God. Because we like to play the blame game. And whenever we go through something or have to deal with something, we, we always want to blame somebody else. We want to shake our fist at God and say, how could you? I think that's natural. We want to blame our spouse, our husband, our wife, our kids, our parents. It's their fault I'm having to walk through this. It's their fault that I am the way that I am. It's their fault that I'm so messed up. It's their fault that I've been. And we, we point fingers. And while some of that is possibly true, that it is their fault that you've had to walk through some stuff, the only person that can choose how to respond to that, it's not them, it's you. Somebody said one time that every major difficulty that we go through in life is a fork in the road. And we choose what's road or which track we'll go down. We'll either go toward breakthrough or we'll go toward breakdown. I read a story once of this newly married couple. The husband was in the armed forces and he moved his new bride out to the California desert. And when she got out there, she just decided that she hated everything about it. She hated the fact that he was gone all the time because he was on active duty. She hated the culture. She hated the climate. She hated the people. She hated the traditions. She hated everything about it. And she wrote a letter home to her mother one day, and she said, I'm done. I'm finished. I'm coming home. I hate it here. Story said that her mother wrote back to her just a short little response. The response said this, two men looked out prison bars and one saw mud and the other saw stars. And all of a sudden it dawned on her what her mother was trying to tell her. It's all about perspective. So she just made up her mind. I'm going to embrace the culture. I'm going to embrace the cacti. I'm going to embrace these Indians that live here on this reservation. I'm going to embrace everything about this desert. They said by the time that his active duty was done over there, she had written a book about the desert. What was the difference? In fact, she changed her perspective. See, if you're not careful, 
you'll take the wrong path and you'll be bitter and your perspective of God will be so negative. And for the sake of being too cliche-ish here, the only choice we have when life throws us a curve pain comes into our life and difficulty and struggles and trials. We can let Him make us better or we can let Him make us bitter. And we can shake our fist at God and point our finger and say, how could you? And I can't believe you do that. And why would you do that to me? And I've given my life to you and this is how you treat me. Or like Fanny J. Crosby, we can say, oh, what a happy so I am. Although I cannot see, I'm resolved in this world, contented I will be. How many blessings others have, how many blessings I have that others don't enjoy to weep and sigh because I'm blind, I cannot and I won't. I want to close with this. This little illustration I came across the other day, some of my reading. The author said this, that if you woke up this morning with more health than illness, you're more blessed than the million who will not survive this week. If you've never experienced the danger of battle, the loneliness of imprisonment, the agony of torture, or the pangs of starvation, you are better than five, you're better off than 500 million people in the world. If you can attend a church meeting or not attend one, without fear of harassment, arrest, torture, or death, you are more blessed than three billion people in the world. If you have food in the refrigerator, clothes on your back, a roof overhead, and a place to sleep, you are richer than 75% of this world. If you have money in the bank or in your wallet or spare change in a dish someplace, you rank among the top 8% of the world's wealthy. And then he closed with this. If you can read this book, you're more blessed than over 2 billion people in the world who cannot read at all. What's the point, Pastor? Here's the point. It's all about perspective. And you can see the trial and the struggle and the disappointments and the pain. They can become your tombstone or they can become your stepping stone to a greater place in God. And it's quite possible tonight there's folks in this place. I know because I know some of your journeys, I know where you've been, that you've walked through some very painful places in your life. You've walked through betrayal. You've walked through heartache. You've walked through rejection. You've walked through abuse mentally, verbally, physically, sexually. You've walked through death, parents of children, stillborn, miscarriages. And I don't care, you hear me right now, I don't care what Washington ever legislates or what they say about when a life begins. I'm telling you, the moment of conception, that seed, that embryo becomes a life that God has given it. I could care less 
whatever law they legislate and act or whatever stupid verbiage they use, and I said it. Ooh, I got a, ooh, boy, help me right here. Somebody better calm me down. And we'll, we were talking about this on the way to church this morning. We'll bust our chops and try to make our, our meals and our kids' cafeteria so much healthier and so much better. But yet we will abort child at 30 plus weeks and we're going to try to feed our kids better but kill children and pull them out of the womb and partial birth a person give me a break please I digress I'm sorry I'm not being political I'm being truthful right there pain pain it's not just death it's when the boss walks in and hands you the pink slip and says I'm sorry we can't keep you anymore you gotta go you're done the spouse looks at you and tells you, I'm sorry, I don't love you anymore. I can't stay married to you. I'm done. And out the door they go, pain. I sense the Holy Ghost in here tonight. Some of you that have walked through places. I look down here at some of these students that are here tonight. This is a, a small picture of what we have on Wednesdays. And I'm telling you, some of these kids come out of stuff that they just not fair for them to have to come out of. Some of them come on their own accord, and parents don't ever show up on Sundays or Wednesdays, and they get here, and they're involved in ministry, and they serve God, and they love Jesus, and they live in hell, some of them. Pain. Pastors, the really purpose, yeah, there's purpose. God's using the pain to help us fulfill the purpose He has for our lives. Would you bow your heads with me in this place?